clean. How do you get clean? The answer to the question largely depends on how something got dirty. Flour fell on the floor, so I swept it up. Coffee spilled on my desk, so I mopped it up. Dirt stained my pants, so I sprayed it with chemicals, rubbed the fabric together as vigorously as I could, and then threw them in the wash. Something sticky got on my hands, so I washed them with soap. Or, with a two-month-old in our house, something especially relevant, spit-up got in my hair, so I took a shower. How something got dirty defines the path on how to get clean. If we ignore this principle, we might find ourselves with more of a mess than we started with. For example, if we were to try to sweep coffee off our desk, we would move the liquid, and then as soon as that broom got to the edge of the surface, those flexed bristles would become catapults of caffeinated fuel in hundreds of different directions. Or, if I were to try to take a shower in order to try and get dirt off my pants, water just wouldn't do the trick. The chemicals that are stronger, strong enough to get the dirt out are needed. At the same time, those same chemicals, if applied to my skin, might cause harm. To be effective, the cleansing must match the soiling. How does your soul get dirty? And by necessary consequence, how can your soul get clean? Please open up to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. As you do, let me just situate us inside the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews reads like a sermon. And the basis of this sermon starts out with an introduction that Jesus is God with a superior identity to the angels. We know this because the name that Jesus has, the Son. The angels are the servants of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Then in Hebrews chapter 2, the author lays out his key thesis for the entire book. The Son of God, the one who created and rules over the universe, has come to serve us as our great high priest in our atoning sacrifice. Chapters 3 to 7 dig more into Jesus' role as a great high priest. And then chapters 8 to 10 focus in on his high priestly work of offering an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 9 falls right in the heart of this section, speaking of an atoning sacrifice. So to give a brief answer to the questions above, sin soils our soul. And if sin is the soil, what's the path to get clean? I pray that you see that atoning blood is the only detergent with the strength and the gentleness to cleanse a sinner's soul. In our text, we'll learn that atoning blood always has, always does, and always will 
cleanse away the stain of sin. We're going to walk briefly through our text section by section, but to give you three organizing hooks, we're going to talk about an old tent, a new tent, and then our future home. So with each of these, we're going to look into the past, look at the present, and then look to the future. So let's get started with the old tent. Coming off of Hebrews chapter 8, suggesting that Jesus is a great high priest of a better covenant with better promises, we read this. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Our text starts off with a visual snapshot of the tabernacle, the tent that served as the meeting place between God and the high priest of Israel. The architecture for this tent is listed in detail in Exodus 25 and 26 when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. The Lord gave specific instructions regarding the size, the shape, the setup, and even the materials that this tent was made with. And the tabernacle was a magnificent tent. Its frames were made of acacia wood covered with gold. On its frames hung curtains of finely twisted linen that were purple and blue and scarlet. And if that wasn't enough, inside, woven into the curtains, was gold. And all the vessels of the tabernacle were made of pure gold. And in that tabernacle, there hung a veil across, separating two sections. The first was called the holy place. The, section, the second section was called the most holy place. Our passage begins with a visual tour of the tabernacle. So if we were to step back in time and step into that tent, what would we see? Well, the first thing that we would see if we enter in from the east, that there would be a lampstand made of pure gold, lit with fire, shining light across the room to a table on our right that had bread on it. This section would be where the priests would offer their daily ministry before God. In front of us would be a curtain And that curtain would have cherubim embroidered into it with gold. Cherubim were the servants of God that we see keeping Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and protecting them from eating from the tree of life. Cherubim had swords of fire. They were dangerous. And to cross over that veil was a dangerous enterprise. In fact, there was only one person in all of Israel who could do it. The high priest. 
and he only one time per year. But if the high priest had a helmet cam, what would we see? He would cross over and with incense creating a smoke that covered the mercy seat that literally protected his life, we would see a box. But not just any box, a golden box. And not an empty box, but a box that had some of the most valuable possessions in the history of the world in it. Supernatural items. Items such as bread that rained down from heaven. Have you ever purchased such a bread at Giant? There was a wooden staff that Aaron had carried. In fact, he carried it before the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And he had thrown that staff down in front of Pharaoh and it became a snake. And then he grabbed it again and it became a staff again. And we know that a piece of wood can't bud anything unless it's attached to the ground to get nutrients. And yet Aaron's staff supernaturally budded by the power of God. That staff was in the box. And finally, we see that there were stone tablets. Tablets that God himself had given commands that were written on them. Have you ever found a box so valuable? And in that golden box with the most valuable things that our world has ever seen was a lid. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat were two more cherubim. Except these cherubim didn't have flaming swords in their hands. They lay prostrate with their wings spread out in front of them as though worshiping God like we heard in Revelation chapter 5. In the center, their wings would touch. And there, at the mercy seat of God, there was the shadow of their wings. This is the tent that was in the center of Israel. It was a tent set up for ministry. And there was a schedule to it. So to see the schedule, let's look at keep reading in verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places has not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This brief summary of the tabernacle schedule features two recurring calendar invites for two different sets of people. First, there's a daily service for the priests of God. 
But second, there's an annual once a year entry into the most holy place for the high priest. Every day, a priest ministered in the holy place. And every year, a high priest ministered in the most holy place. Simple, right? The setup of the tent and the schedule of the tent are not the point, though. Our author even says, I can't go into the details of this. The ministry of the priests is the point. They ministered for people, sinful people whose lives had soiled their hearts before God. The priests served as intercessors and mediators between sinful Israelites, and they brought these sinful Israelites near to God. Do you need somebody to draw you near to God? That's the role of a mediator. If you're here this morning and you are far off from God, keep listening. The God of the Bible has made a way for a mediator to bring you close to him. The primary mediator emphasized in our text is the high priest on the day that he entered into the most holy place. This day was called the Day of Atonement. And our text says, into the second, that's the second place, the most holy place, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Notice the glorious combination. There's a mediator who can draw us close. And then there's blood that can wash us clean. The scripture does not leave us guessing what occurred on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 outlines the high priestly duties. In fact, it outlines it so detailed that it lets us know the animals that the high priest was to sacrifice down to the underwear that the high priest was to wear. It's all in the scripture. But the question is, what was the result of the day of atonement? Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30 says this, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Friends, are you feeling dirty before the Lord? Bloody atonement makes sinners clean before God. But what do these tabernacle sacrifices have to do with us? We don't gather in a tent and we don't celebrate the Day of Atonement. What does this have to do with you? Why should you care about this old tent and its workings? Well, look at verse 9. The first tent is a parable for the time which has now arrived. And it was put in place, look at the end of verse, verse 10, until the time of reformation. The tabernacle not only served a purpose in ancient Israel, it pointed forward to the present day. Because of the old tent, the people of Israel got ceremonially clean. But that old tent had a limitation. In the old tent, 
Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. The ministries of the old tent dealt with the body, ceremonial cleansing. Where can sinners go to find a mediator and blood that can cleanse your conscience? That brings us to our second point, the new tent. We'll pick up reading in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice what's better about this new order. It's all better. There's a better tent, there's better blood, and there's a better mediator. Let's look at the better tent, verse 11. The text calls it the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. The tabernacle was a tricked out tent. It had gold everywhere. It had the finest materials. It had the best zip code in the camp of Israel. It was where God met with man in Israel. But the new tent exceeds the old tent in glory. Skilled craftsmen made the the tabernacle. There were no hands that made this new and perfect tent. It's not manufactured. It's not erected. It's not even of this creation. This new and greater tent is the more perfect tent of heaven itself. The place where God is forever. To give you a little preview of this, look at our same chapter, chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered. Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ's high priestly work is to be exercised in the perfect tabernacle of heaven. The real high priest who offers the real atoning sacrifice for sin serves in the real tabernacle. The better mediator with the better blood serves in the better tent. And there is better blood. Better blood that can make us clean. It says the blood of goats and bulls sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. If your flesh gets dirty, you need cleanliness of the flesh. Animal sacrifices resulted in ceremonial cleanliness, clean outsides. But what about clean insides? 
the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, we're in church. I have a question for us. Are you here because you want to be clean on the outside? Or are you here because you want to be clean on the inside? What does your conscience say? Friends, our conscience can accuse us. I experience it daily. I trust as so long as you haven't muted your conscience, you do too. Here's just a brief list of some accusations that my own conscience has brought against me this past week. Perhaps you can relate to a few. You are lazy. You just quit whenever things get hard. You are so easily distracted. You let the peripheral things crowd out the main stuff. You are a hypocrite. You say one thing and then do another. You are a coward. You don't even look people in the eye when you talk to them. You are failing as a worker, as a father, as a Christian. You're an outsider. These people don't want you near them. Isn't the sting of these accusations that our conscience brings against us the hint of truth in them? What can silence an accusation that even has a hint of truth? The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works. So we may say to that raging voice inside of us, you may be right about all that, but you're wrong at one very crucial point. Conscience, you think that nobody can do anything about that. Christian, we have blood. Conscience silencing blood. Death defying blood. Does your conscience accuse you? There is a voice that screams louder still. Blood was spilt for you. Bring all your failings. Bring all your sins. Bring everything that accuses you before God. Bring it all and see what the God man's blood does for you. He will fight for you. He will shout for you. He will overcome for you. Tell me, Christian, do you sometimes feel like a punching bag for your own conscience? Locked alone in a dark room to be pummeled again and again and again. Punches to the gut, wounds to the soul. Who can rescue you? Light has broken into your darkness. Christ has come to rescue you. He is not afraid of a fight. He has shed his own blood. His body was pierced. And yet, he lives to keep on fighting. Oh, what a mighty defender we have in our Savior. Fatal wounds and death itself cannot keep him from protecting us. Death itself is overcome. Christians, this is our King. He is our strong defender. He is our safe refuge. Flee to him with your failings. Flee to him with your offenses. And hear what he says to you. 
I have conquered all that. And my blood cleanses from all that makes you dirty. What then can you say in return? Would you be so bold as to say, no, Lord, you don't understand how big a sinner I am. Your blood cannot cleanse so deep as my soul goes. How would you insult the Savior of the world with so little faith? Is your debt so great that his precious blood cannot foot the bill? Repent at once. You, though precious as you are to God, are not so valuable that the blood of his beloved son cannot bring you out of bankruptcy into a rich inheritance. See how great a love lies in the heart of our high priest. The high priest of Israel entered into the holy places with blood not their own. But our high priest has entered by means of his own blood. Who needs the way of the old tent with brutish blood of animals and sinful priests to go into the high place when we have the sinless Savior of the world who has offered his own blood, better blood, to cleanse the conscience of sinners from dead works? We have better blood. Conscience silencing blood. Blood that makes our insides clean. And blood that has bought us back forever. See the great transaction that Jesus has closed on our behalf. He shed his blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemption means to buy back. It means to pay a ransom such that you get to go free from slavery. Do you know of a more valuable deal than the eternal redemption of sinners through the blood of Jesus. Back in my first job out of college, I saw a couple valuable transactions. I worked briefly on Wall Street, and in my brief tenure there, I participated in the merger between the number two and three largest trash haulers in the country. The deal was worth $13.2 billion dollars. And now, I think that I should only have participated in that transaction for this. When you walk out of church and you walk to your parking lot and you see that dumpster, then you just remember that $13.2 billion is but rubbish compared to the exchange of a damned sinner to become a holy son or daughter of God through the blood of Jesus. What good is cash flow unless you have the cleansing flow of Jesus' blood for you? And if you're here and you don't follow Christ, what do you possess that is more precious than this blood? I tell you, you could be the richest person in all of Catonsville and you are but a poor beggar in light of these dear saints who are clinging to Jesus. All the wealth that you own cannot procure the Lord's will to sway from true justice. That would be a bribe. So take all that you have and see if its value can purchase rest for your soul, cleanliness for your soul. I assure you, you will come up wanting in comparison to eternal redemption. Yet, without spending one penny, 
you may acknowledge your debt of sin before God and fall before Jesus and say, have mercy on me, O Lord. And then you will have precious blood that is able to cleanse you of all of your sins. Trust in Jesus. He is the one who saves sinners like you forever. He is the better mediator who brings sinners close to God by the means of his own blood. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Notice the parallel. The old tent was inaugurated in blood. Death activates the promises of the old covenant. And in the new tent, the new tent is inaugurated with blood as well. The blood of Jesus dying for our sin activates the promises of the new covenant. It's you, a, a will is used in order to express the fact that the one who made the will needs to die before it goes into effect. The death of Jesus activates the new covenant promises of God and initiates the distribution of the inheritance to everyone who is written into his will. Christian, see that you're rich. See the benefits outlined for you. You are the one that it's talking about when it says that you may receive the promised eternal inheritance. But the question is why? Why do you get to become rich with an eternal inheritance? Well, the text says, a death has occurred that redeems you from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But with blood, there is forgiveness. When sin is the soil, how can we get clean? It's through the atoning blood where there is forgiveness of sin. Jesus, by shedding his own blood, made a way for the stain of sin to be washed away from your soul. How often do you need to be washed then? Only once. Look at verse 23. 
Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The tabernacle in all of its workings were merely copies of the true things that happen in heaven itself. The things that cleanse in heaven itself, they are the real things. The way of the old tent is obsolete. Sinful priests annually offering blood not their own and then just having to do it again the next year. A superior way has come. The new tent inaugurated in blood, which endures forever. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One for all, once for all. Sin atoned for. Wrath is quenched. Sin is conquered forever. Notice the superior duration of the superior sacrifice. The sinful high priests of Israel needed to repeat their ministry year after year after year. Another year. Another day of atonement. Another bull. Another goat. And yet, it's like one of those stains that you just couldn't remove. We've got a stain right now that we're trying to remove from a blanket. And you know what we've had to do? We spray it with chemicals and we rub it together and we throw it in the wash. We take it out of the wash and we look at it again. And the stain's not there in the same way that it was before, but it's still kind of there. So what do we do? You know, a week later, we spray some chemicals, we rub it together, we throw it back in the wash. And then we take it back out and what's happened? It's still there. That's right. It's dried. Would you have to repeat that if the stain was gone? You know what you'd do? You'd throw that thing in the washing machine. You'd open it up. And you know what you'd say? My work is done. That's what Jesus has done for you by his blood. The work is done. The fully effective sacrifice needs no repeating. The death of Jesus is fully sufficient to wash away all your sin. Only one cycle is needed and the stain is gone. But what if I don't feel like the washing is effective? What if I feel more like I'm losing? Church, even if your soul is in so dark a valley that this sermon doesn't shed a glimmer of encouragement to you, There is a day when your heart will sing with gladness that you have trusted upon Jesus. And you will know then 
that the blood of Jesus truly does cleanse you of all sin. Let's conclude with our third point, our final home. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This final section sets up a comparison. It begins with the normal sequence of mankind. We live, we die, we stand before God. But then it talks how Christ died once and will appear a second time. Further, it lists the purpose for Christ dying. To offer himself to bear the sins of many. And the purpose of Christ appearing is also listed both negatively and positively. First, it says negatively, when he returns, it will not to be deal with, to deal with sin. He's already done that. When Christ returns a second time, it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we're going to conclude with a comparison, just looking at this comparison and seeing what it says about Jesus and what it says for us. Notice what it says about Jesus first. He was a man. He died. He died as a sacrifice, offering himself for the sins of many. And yet, he will appear a second time. Our Savior is alive. Oh, friends, see what that says about Jesus. God pronounced the curse of death for sin. And Jesus, the righteous one, has overcome sin and death. He died to bear the sins of many. And he rose. And he ascended into heaven. And he now intercedes for us. And he's coming back for us. He lives to make intercession. And he will appear again to save us to the uttermost. Back in the old tent, there would be uh, a group of people who would stand outside the tent. The high priest would go in and he would take blood. And as we mentioned... It was a dangerous place to go into the most holy place. And so what all the people of Israel who are waiting to see if their sins would be atoned for would do is they would stand outside the tent and they would watch the tent eagerly waiting to see if that great high priest came out alive. Do you see what we're doing as Christians? We are standing outside that holy place of heaven. And yet our eyes are fixed on heaven and we are just waiting for that great high priest to show up. And when he does, we will know and the whole world will know without a shadow of a doubt that his sacrifice was accepted for us. Now consider what this section requires of us. Is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
Who is it who fears the judgment of God? Is it not those whose soul is stained with sin and who has no blood to cleanse him? What a terrifying thing to face the judgment of God with all of your stains brought before him and no blood to cleanse you. But friends, there is better news for us. What happens if you have blood to cleanse your stain of sin? What will you say when you stand before God and all your sins are exposed? We will say, Oh Lord, sins have soiled my soul and yet your blood has washed me clean. What will God say to you in response? Welcome to your final home. We do not know what will come first, our death or the return of our Lord. But in either occasion, we know this for sure. Our great high priest has loved us. He has shed his blood for us and he will save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one who sent your son to die for us. We praise you for his precious blood. And Lord, we praise you for his high priestly work on behalf of us. Lord, we eagerly await his return. And we say, come Lord.